Well, good evening, everyone. You know, one of the greatest gifts that God has given to us is the freedom to choose. I mean, imagine how frustrating an empty life would be if you didn't have the freedom to make choices. Down through history and more recently, over the last few weeks in Egypt and Libya, people have been willing to die in order to have freedom. We cherish our freedom. And yet the reality is the decisions we make have consequences. And as we saw in this little clip a moment ago, there are numerous examples of that down uh, through the scriptures. Imagine how different things would be if Adam and Eve had chosen to obey rather than to rebel against God. How different things would be if, Adam, uh, if Abraham and Sarah had waited for God's timing to have a child rather than taking matters into their own hands through Sarah's maidservant, Hagar. Our choices have consequences. I mean, think of someone that you know, someone that you care about, who's making some very bad decisions right now in their life. Maybe it's a friend who is trading in her faith and her convictions for a relationship with a guy that she knows deep down inside isn't right for her. Or maybe it's a spouse trying to find love in the arms of another man. Maybe it's a parent refusing to talk to a family member because of pride and resentment. Or maybe it's a child who's on a pathway of rebellion against God. As you've agonized over the destructive choices that this person is making, haven't you found yourself at times wishing that it was in your power to actually make the decisions for them. Singer and evangelist Lowell Lundstrom and his wife Connie, they tell the story of their daughter Lisa, who when she was 15 years of age decided that she wanted to um, taste life uh, in the fast lane. And, and so she left home and over the next two years she, she began to connect with the fast crowd and she did some fast living. But it didn't take very long for her to realize that life in the fast lane wasn't all that it's cracked up to be. By the time she was 17, she'd been arrested for prostitution, which she did to basically support her alcohol and drug addictions. She was raped four times. She'd been beaten multiple times. Now parents, if this was your daughter, or if, 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 if this was your sister, that we're talking about, wouldn't you be just sick with gut-wrenching agony? Well, that is exactly the kind of agony that our Heavenly Father has when we make decisions that are outside of His best intentions for us, when we thumb our nose at God and we basically say, thanks but no thanks, I'm going my way. God loves us with an everlasting love. He has our absolute best interests at heart, even if our circumstances don't seem to, to, to uh, verify that. He truly does have our best interests at heart. And like a loving father, he pleads with us in his word through the still small voice of the, his Holy Spirit to trust him and to follow him with all of our hearts so that it will go well with us and the generation that follows us. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, after giving Moses uh, and the Israelites the Ten Commandments. God says this to Moses in verse 29. He says, Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me. In other words, to respect me, to honor me, to believe me, to trust me, and keep my commands always, so that it may go well with them and their children forever. See, that is the heart of our loving Heavenly Father. He wants us to follow his commands and his precepts and the principles in his word, not to make our life miserable, but so that it will go well with us. Well, this truth is fleshed out in the life of the next prophet that we're going to look at as we continue our walk through the Old Testament, the prophet Jonah. So I want to invite you to take your Bibles out. I want you to open it to the book of Jonah. Just keep it open as we kind of make our way through, particularly the first chapter. 
And uh, while you're doing that, just let me give you a little background to this book. Verse 1 tells us that Jonah was the son of Amatai. He lived in a little village near the Lake of Galilee and prophesied mainly in the northern kingdom of Israel. You remember there were two kingdoms that followed King Solomon. A civil war erupted, two kingdoms emerged, the southern kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel. Well, Jonah was part of the northern kingdom. We are first introduced to Jonah back in 2 Kings chapter 14. When God calls Jonah to go to King Jeroboam II and instruct him to restore the boundaries of Israel. And based upon that time framework, it appears that Jonah ministered somewhere between 780 BC and 750 BC and was likely one of the company of apostles, of apostles, rather prophets that we read about in the scriptures that was trained by Elijah near the end of his ministry. Now, Jesus himself made specific reference to Jonah um, and the story of Jonah in Matthew chapter 12, saying that the people of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. In other words, Jesus believed that Jonah was a real person, and he also believed that the story of Jonah that we find here was an actual historical event. And I point that out because there are people who believe that the book of Jonah never really took place in history. It's not a real story, but it's rather, it's an allegory, it's a parable. And the biggest reason that they feel that way is because they can't accept the idea that Jonah was swallowed by a whale and lived to tell about it. And so I want to just address that issue briefly. To begin with, I need to clarify that it wasn't a whale. It was, a, it was a great fish. In chapter 1, look at verse 17. It says, but the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. But notice, secondly, it says the Lord provided the great fish. He arranged the great fish. In other words, he performed a miracle here. It's quite possible that this was a one-of-a-kind fish that God created specifically for Jonah, for Jonah at this particular point in time. And that there's never been a fish like it ever since. I mean, people down through the, through, through the centuries have been measuring whales and trying to figure out, you know, is it possible that, there, that a whale could have swallowed a man like Jonah? But you see, people need to shift their focus from the great fish to our great God. The issue is not, is there a fish big enough to swallow a man? No, the better question is, is God capable of performing such a miracle? Well, I don't know about the God that you serve, but the God that I serve, the God of the Bible, he's not only alive and well, but he's more than able to do this. I mean, if God's capable of creating the earth, if he's capable of creating a man, and especially if he's capable of creating a woman. I mean, women are complex creatures. If he's capable of creating a woman. I mean, if, if God is, is capable of raising Jesus from the dead, then he is definitely capable of creating a great fish big enough to swallow Jonah. Amen? I mean, if God created the universe, and if he wanted to, he could have created a fish with carpet and air conditioning to take care of Jonah if he wanted to, rather than the salt-based, seedweed-infested, fishy storage cavity that Jonah hung out in for a few days. But you see, it's unfortunate, but some people can't separate Jonah from the whale. You know, they kind of see them as a couple. You know, you've got uh, Bonnie and Clyde, you've got Romeo and Juliet, and then you've got Jonah and the whale. And on top of that, they get so fixated on how a fish could pull this off that they actually miss the life-changing message of the book of Jonah. So, let's get past the fish, okay? And let's focus on the message that God wants to communicate to us today. But before we get into that message, I'd like us to stand and I want to dedicate our time to the Lord in prayer.
Our Heavenly Father, we worship you as the creator of the universe, the God that is all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present. We magnify your holy name, O Lord. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this incident in the life of Jonah and the things you want to say to us. And I ask that you would, you would focus our minds right now. You would remove distractions. That you would allow us, Lord, to hear what we need to hear and then you give us the courage to respond the way you'd have us to. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I hope that most of you had the chance to read the book of Jonah. I realize that many of you have somewhere in the past in your life, and you are somewhat familiar with it. But as I reread and studied the book of Jonah this past week, there were five principles that really stood out to me that I believe God wants to bring to our attention. And the first one really grows out of our overall study of the Old Testament and really of all of Scripture. It's really the theme of the Scriptures. And that is that God is on a mission. Ever since our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God back in the Garden of Eden, God has been on a mission to bring all people back in right relationship with himself. In the words of Jonah over in chapter 4, Jonah said this about God. He said, God, you are gracious, you are compassionate, you are slow to anger, you are abounding in love. No matter how wicked people are, how indifferent they may be to God, God pursues all people. He will do everything that he can, short of imposing himself upon us, forcing himself upon us, to woo us back into a close relationship with himself. God is on a mission. Secondly, God wants to involve us in his mission. One of the ways he does this is by giving us assignments. And this brings us to the story of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1 says this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. <coughs> God gives Jonah an assignment. His assignment is clear, it's to the point. Go to Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, located on the east bank of the Tigris rivers, somewhat about 400 miles east of the Mediterranean Sea. It was an impressive city with a large population. The city had many suburbs, but the main part of the city was about 30 miles long and about 10 miles wide. Surrounding it were five walls and three canals. The walls were 100 feet high. Folks, that's about 10 stories high. And they were wide enough to allow four chariots to be driven abreast uh, along the top of it. This was a magnificent city. On the other hand, Nineveh was an extremely wicked city, filled with violence and immorality. When Nahum, the prophet, whom we're going to look at soon, when he wrote about Nineveh, he described it as a place where killing never stops. History tells us of how when they defeated a city, the Ninevites would not only burn the whole city to the ground, but then they would take the women and the children as their own personal slaves. They would torture their prisoners by cutting off their hands and their feet, burning them at the stake. The kings, the Assyrian kings, would celebrate their victories by decorating their palace with the heads of their victims. I mean, this was not just another city. No, they were a cruel, brutal, and wicked people. And as a result, the nations around them, including Israel, were not very fond of them. In fact, they despised them. And so did Jonah. Nineveh was not on Jonah's favorite people list. This was the last people group 
that he wanted to see get right with God. He wanted them to pay for their wickedness. And yet even though they wanted nothing to do with God, God had compassion on the Ninevites. And God demonstrated that compassion by sending Jonah to preach to them and gave them the opportunity to repent and to turn to God. And so God says, Jonah, (coughs) I need you to pack up. I need you to go to the great city of Nineveh and preach at it. Now, you know, as followers of Jesus Christ, it is important for us to understand that God loves us too much to just kind of let us sit around and vegetate spiritually. No, in the same way that loving parents want their children to achieve their God-given potential, so God wants our faith in him to grow. So God wants us to reach our God-given spiritual potential. And so he calls us to join him in fulfilling this grand mission that he is on. And it involves giving us assignments. He will call us to step out of our comfort zone and to go to Nineveh, a place that we often don't want to go to. But a place, (coughs) sorry, I got a tickle. (coughs) Okay, we'll try again. He wants us to go to Nineveh, a place that we often don't want to go to ourselves because of fear or because of hurt or because of pride, but a place where he will perform a miracle of grace through us if we will trust him and obey. For some of us, our Nineveh will be extending grace and forgiveness to someone that we think doesn't deserve it. For others of us, our Nineveh will be putting our trust in God and stepping out and leading a group or serving in a place that we feel so inadequate in. Still for others, our Nineveh will be dealing with sin in our lives, dealing with pride or unforgiveness or greed or sexual sin, slanderous gossip, materialism, a lack of generosity. Nineveh could be one of a hundred different things that God calls us to. Well, Jonah heard God call. He got off the couch, he packed his suitcase, he headed out the door, and he headed south. Nineveh was east. He went south. Verse 3 tells us he didn't head to Nineveh, but he went down south to Jaffa, a beautiful town just south of modern Tel Aviv. And there he boarded a ship headed for Tarshish. Tarshish. Say that a couple, two, three times to the person next to you. Go ahead. Tarshish, Tarshish, Tarshish. That's tough, isn't it? That's really tough. I've worked on that all week to say that right. I don't know if I've got it right yet. That leads to the third principle. That is, God doesn't want us running away from him to Tarshish. (laughs) Now, if you look at the map in front of you, there it is. Okay. Tarshish was most likely located on what is now the nation of Spain and was at the exact opposite direction from Nineveh. Now, I believe that Jonah knew that he couldn't hide from God. I'm sure he would have, he would have agreed with the psalmist when he said, where can I go from your spirit, O Lord? 
Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Jonah didn't head for Tarshish to hide from God. But to get his mind off of God. Through the distraction of lesser things. Just to get preoccupied, to get busy doing other things. Like shopping. Or sightseeing. Or playing some golf. Or checking out summer cottages on the seacoast of Spain. Anything that would keep his mind focused on things other than what God was calling him to. Tarshish represents those things in our lives that help us to forget God. That help us to put God at a safe, comfortable distance. For example, we know that we're running from Tarshish when God calls us to ask a person to forgive us. But it's too hard on our pride. And so we come up with a list of excuses why we just can't do that and we put it off. We know we're running to Tarshish when God calls us to keep our relationship sexually pure. But we resist doing so because we can't bear the thought of losing this person. When we procrastinate using the gifts, the talents, the resources that God has given to us for his glory, and we fill our lives with all kinds of activities, even good activities, but we just find ourselves too busy for God, we're heading for Tarshish. We know we're running to Tarshish when God calls us to be generous, but we're afraid to let go of our stuff because this stuff is our source of security. I mean, who would we be if we didn't have this stuff? <coughs> and what will I do if I don't get rid of this cough? <coughs> I'm going to try a... Whatever this is. So if I have a lisp, you'll know why, okay? Okay. Anyways, that's what Jonah did here. He decided to put God's call on hold in his life by distracting himself with the good things of life over in Tarshish. Which leads to principle number four. God loves us too much to leave us in Tarsus. Verse four. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid. Each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. Now I want you to notice that this storm wasn't a chance happening. This storm was specifically created by God for the purpose of getting Jonah's attention. Early in the trip to Tarshish, I can imagine Jonah being on the deck of this ship as it headed out into the Mediterranean, headed towards Spain. And he's just enjoying the panoramic view around him, the coast along Israel, the beautiful, deep uh, blue color of the, of the Mediterranean Sea. And he's thinking to himself, you know, life is pretty good. My plan's just working out the way I, I hoped it would. But then the storm hits. And Jonah knows that it's because God's trying to wake him up to his, fo his own folly. Make no mistake, God loves you too much to let you settle in and get real comfortable in Tarsish. When you turn your back on God's call in your life, when you set your sights on the good life at Tarsish, you may have smooth sailing for a time, but after a while, God's going to do whatever it takes 
to get your attention. You're going to face a storm of some kind. Your well-planned life will suddenly begin to unravel. Things will not turn out the way you'd planned. You can count on that. When you run from God, expect rough seas ahead. He loves you too much to leave you at Tarshish. And remember this, there's always a cost that comes when we choose to run from God. As I said earlier, our choices have consequences. It's kind of interesting, if you, if you look at the, 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 the verse here, it says that Jonah paid the fare to go to Tarshish. Commentators that I've consulted say that's an interesting little piece of information to include. It doesn't seem that important, but <clears throat> it appears that one of the things that God's saying to us by that is that it cost Jonah to go to Tarsish. And folks, it costs us to go to Tarsish as well. We pay for it emotionally, through worry, through t uh, fear, through bitterness, lack of joy, lack of peace. We pay for it physically, with ulcers, with heart attacks, and the drain that comes through self-induced stress. We pay through it relationally, with the breakdown of relationships, the conflict that happens in relationship between us and other people. But you know, more than that, we're not the only ones that pay for this. When we run from God, people around us suffer as well. I mean, the mother of all storms here not only brought immense stress on the life of these sailors, but forced them to throw their precious cargo overboard, which may have been their life savings. <coughs> and yet, that happened because Jonah was disobedient to God. Whether the issue is anger and resentment towards someone, whether it's sexual sin, whether it's greed, whether it's addictions, whether it's abuse, or just ignoring God's call in our life, sin and selfishness doesn't just hurt us. But it hurts our parents. It hurts our spouse. It hurts our children. It hurts our friends. There's always a cost that comes when you take matters into your own hands and you head for Tarsus. <coughs> well, the storm intensifies even more, and the sailors are in desperation. They say to Jonah, so what can we do to get your God to calm down the sea. And Jonah says, pick me up and throw me into the sea and it will become calm. I know it is my fault that this storm has come upon you. Now the sailors are afraid to throw Jonah overboard because you see, while all this has been going on and they've been wailing and praying to their own gods, they become aware that their gods are no, not gods. They're just gods they made up. They're counterfeit gods. And while this is all going on, they've come to the realization that the God of Jonah is God. And so there they are. They've got Jonah up in the air. They're about to throw him overboard. But before they do, they cry out to the God of Jonah and say, please don't blame us for this. That's my paraphrase. <laughs> they throw him overboard, and immediately the raging sea grows calm. And verse 16 says, At this the men greatly feared the Lord. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord, <coughs> and they made vows to him. You know, that verse amazes me because it tells me that sometimes God accomplishes his purposes through us even when we're not cooperating with him. I mean, when Jonah boards this ship, he has no intention of introducing these sailors or anyone else to his God. I mean, he's running from God. And so because of his compassion for lost people, God sends a storm not only to wake up Jonah, 
But he uses that same storm to wake up these sailors to God's reality and to God's power. When the sea grows calm, as Jonah predicted, the Bible says these men broke out in worship of the God of Jonah. A pagan ship becomes a place of worship. A shipload of sailors surrender their lives to the true God of Jonah, even though this was the last thing that Jonah was interested in. Friends, in the same way, sometimes God will use the storms that he allows to come into your life and my life, not only to wake us up, but to wake up those around us. You know, down through the years, I've had all kinds of people tell me how God used a storm in the life of a loved one, a loss, a great hurt of some sort, in the life of a friend or a family member, to wake them up to God, to bring them to a place where they realized that their life was headed in a, in a, in a in a very bad direction. To teach them to number their days aright and to make their peace with God. Which leads to the fifth and the final principle. God is the God of second chances. I'm wondering if you've ever thought about what Jonah was thinking about <laughs> when um, he was about to be thrown into the raging sea. <coughs> well, we don't know, of course. The Bible doesn't tell us, but... You know, I think I pretty con- I'm, I'm, I've got a, the odds are pretty good in, 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 in thinking that Jonah's mind, what he was thinking about as he was being tossed over was, well, this is it. I'm going to die. I mean, you can be sure that Jonah wasn't thinking that God was going to send a great fish to save him right at this point in time. No, he was convinced that he was going to die, and that he deserved to die. Jonah figured that he'd really ticked God off, that God sent the storm to make him pay for his disobedience, and that God wouldn't be happy until he'd paid for his disobedience. Even though in chapter 4, Jonah says, I know, he says to God, I know that you are a compassionate God, a gracious God, It seems that he's not applying it to his own life here. Somehow he's concluded that he's beyond the grace of God. Brian Clark says Jonah believed that he went too far. That God was done with him. That he was doomed not just to die but doomed to be eternally separated from God. Ever feel that way? Ever feel that you've gone too far, that that God's done with you? Maybe you're feeling that right now. You look at your life and you have so many regrets. You wish that you could play the rewind button on the tape and do over your life again or part of your life again. You're convinced it's too late, that too much water's gone under the bridge, that there's no hope for you. Now, earlier in the message, I referred to the story of (coughs) Lisa Lundstrom. And in her testimony, she talks about how after a period of time, she came to the realization that what she was doing was not only wrong, but it was actually destructive, that her life was headed for destruction. And by the time she realized this, she figured that she'd gone too far. That she'd reached a point of no return. She believed that there was no hope. She knew that she'd blown it, and so why even try stopping? It was that mindset which caused her to go even deeper into sin, deeper into depravity, further on the road toward destruction, because she believed the same lie that Jonah did here, And that is that there was no hope, that God was done with her. We know Jonah believed that because in chapter 2, 
in his prayer to God, one of the things he says there is, I have been banished from your sight. Jonah's saying here, <clears throat> this is what I believed in my heart to be true as I was being thrown overboard. That I was no longer welcome in the presence of God. I no longer had a relationship with God. I was doomed to eternity without God. And even though Jonah figures that it's over, it's never over with God. God extends grace and compassion toward Jonah, even as he wanted to extend grace to the Ninevites. And he appoints a great fish to swallow Jonah to preserve his life. And you know, we read this in the scriptures, and as I said earlier, you know, we all get surprised reading that, whoa, this great fish comes along and swallows him. Isn't that cute and that wonderful? But I'm convinced that no one was more surprised than Jonah when this happened. He was surprised by God's grace. He wasn't expecting this. He figured that it was lights out, and yet here he was, still alive in the belly of a whale. And he knew it was a miracle. He knew it was a miracle that God performed. He realized that he was alive only because of the compassion and the grace of God. His life can go no lower. He's hit rock bottom. And yet new life is pulsating through his body and his soul because he realizes that God has not given up on him. And that makes all the difference. And for the first time in a long time, Jonah looks up to God and reaches out to God in prayer. You know, friends, it doesn't matter how hopeless you feel or how much seaweed is wrapped around your neck and pulling you down. Whatever you're feeling, whatever you're facing, however low you feel you've allowed yourself to go, I challenge you not to give up, but to turn to God in prayer. Even if you feel your circumstances are, are your own fault, and it may very well be your own fault, don't run from God. Don't go to Tarshish. No, run to God. All the way through the Old Testament, we've seen that God loves a broken and a contrite heart. God loves it when we come to the end of ourselves and we are desperate for him. The Bible says he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So regardless of how hopeless you may feel, never give up on God because God never gives up on you. That is what Jonah does in chapter two. He prays a desperate prayer to God, followed by a prayer of praise, and he surrenders his life to God. And verse 10 says, the Lord commanded the fish to vomit Jonah onto dry land. And God says to Jonah a second time, Jonah, go to Nineveh. And it's really interesting. Jonah didn't argue this time. Didn't resist. Didn't complain. Didn't try to run, no. All indication is he took off for Nineveh. You know, it must have been quite a sight. You know, after spending three days in the belly of a fish, his skin was probably ghost white after being bleached from the acids of the great fish's stomach. He was likely covered with shrimp cocktail and tuna tartar. His hair was probably matted. His half-digested clothes were slimy and stinky as all get out. I mean, imagine a guy looking like that walking up to you and saying, Repent. Whatever he looked like, God was with him. 
And God used Jonah to bring revival to the city of Nineveh. The entire city from the king right down to the smallest child, probably over a half million people, turned their lives over to God. And it happened because we serve a God of second chances. Not only was God compassionate to the Ninevites, he was compassionate to Jonah. God was not willing to give up on Jonah. He sought him out. He got his attention because he cared for him. He wanted Jonah to experience firsthand the power of grace and to learn that in eternity's view, the dangerous place is not Nineveh, but Tarshish. And friends, God longs for us to learn the same thing, to realize that from the perspective of eternity, running to Tarshish, though initially exciting, will lead to a shallowness and a despair in life, while going to Nineveh, though initially intimidating, will lead to immeasurable fulfillment and joy. What the story of Jonah teaches is God never writes us off. And so if you've been running from God, he says to you, no matter what you've done, Let's start over. He always holds up the hope of a second chance and the opportunity to be all that he created you to be. I'll close with this. A story is told about an Indian brave who found an eagle's egg. And since he couldn't find the nest to put it back, he did the next best thing. And that is he took the eagle's egg and he put it in a nest with prairie chicken eggs. And so the eagle hatched and began to live with the prairie chickens. All that evil eagle ever saw were prairie chickens. And so it clucked and it scratched and it pecked around like a chicken for years. One day it saw a glorious sight in the sky. It was a great bald eagle soaring up there in the sky. And he turned to his chicken cousins and he said, what is that? And one of them said, oh, that is the eagle, the king of birds, the greatest of birds. But forget it, that's not for you, you're a chicken. And he lived the rest of his life clucking, pecking, scratching, never flying, never soaring. You know, friends, by the grace of God, you and I, his forever children, are called to be eagles that soar. God created us to join him in fulfilling the greatest mission ever. He called us to give our lives to a cause that has eternal stakes. And yet, you see, our culture would have us believe that all that we are is chickens. That the only great thing that we can and will ever achieve in this life, the only thing worth giving our life to, is to compete with one another over chicken feed in Tarsish. Over temporary earthly things that won't amount to a hill of chicken dung when it's all said and done. And yet Jesus in his word is saying to us, don't get sucked into that way of thinking. Spread those wings and fly. Become all I've created you to be by staying away from Tarsage and instead running to me and doing the assignment that I've given you in Nineveh. One day, you'll be so glad you did. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes for a moment?
Before I pray, I'm wondering how many of you would have to say that you're running from God. God's been talking to you perhaps for some time now about dealing with sin in your life. Dealing with pride. Dealing with unforgiveness and resentment. Dealing with greed. Slanderous gossip. Sexual sin. An unequally yoked romantic relationship. Materialism. A lack of generosity. And you've heard him. But you've been avoiding him. You've been avoiding the issue and you've been hanging out at Tarsish. God's called some of you to trust him and to step out and to lead. To lead in some way. Or perhaps to serve the Lord in some way. Are you following through? Or are you hanging out at Tarsish? Maybe you're running in secret hidden ways. And maybe you've been so distracted, you've kept yourself so busy that it hasn't been until in this service right now that you finally or suddenly become aware that, yeah, you've been running from God. What, what are you going to do with what God's talking to you about? Are, are you going to get on a ship and you're going to head to Tarsish? Jesus says, don't go there. Come running to me. Tarsish isn't the answer. It doesn't work. One day you're going to realize that. And you're going to experience despair beyond imagination. Jesus says, run to me. Trust me. Follow me. Take a moment right now and, and just talk to him about whatever he's been speaking to you about. Let's do that together. for your word and thank you for the story of Jonah. And Lord, thank you for the reminder that even as you sought out Jonah, even as you would not let him go, you were unwilling to turn your back on him. Even as you extended grace to him, Lord, so you extend grace to us. You're pursuing us, Lord, because you love us, because you care for us. And I pray, Lord, that if anyone here has been running from you, that they will have cried out to you even right now and dealt with these issues in their lives. I pray, Lord, that you will remind them of 
your love, that you will remind them of your grace, of your desire, Lord, to live in them and to live through them. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the way that you you pursue us. Like the author said, it's your, you're like the hound of heaven that refuses to give up on us. Thank you so much for your amazing love. For we prayed in the precious name of Jesus. Would you stand, please? Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. There are